Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we gain root access to some of the people shaping the cybersecurity industry and dive into their journey so far to find out what events have shaped their career, what motivates them, and what still keeps them up at night. Today, I'm really pleased to be joined by Emir Vigfusson, an Icelandic hacker, researcher, associate professor, and co-founder of multiple security companies. Emir is a passionate advocate for improving security by helping people understand how things break. In 2020, he delivered a TEDx talk entitled, You Should Learn How to Hack, where he encouraged people to adopt a hacker mindset whilst demonstrating hacking a bank while wearing a balaclava and suit live on stage. So, Emir, willkommen in podcast. Thank you so much. Pleasure being here. So, can you tell us a little bit about your early life and how you first got into technology and became interested in things uh, while living in Reykjavik? Sure, of course. Yeah. So Iceland is, is this cold place. I don't know if you can imagine based on the name. Um, so a lot of things happen indoors. <laughs> and so, uh, for me, that was, of course, uh, computers. I got a, I was lucky enough that my dad brought home a PC computer when I was eight years old and he never saw me again. So, um, I started fiddling with QBasic and making some programs and one thing led to another. And it was, uh, programming in C or something. And I was, uh, I think 13 or so. And then, uh, Things to the turn. <laughs> so I, I can build on that if you if you like. Um, but I, so yeah, I started looking. So my friends got Linux, right? This was this new new operating system that 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 was the coolest thing that all the cool kids had. That was just text, and it just it felt like this amazing. It was like the Matrix, but the Matrix hadn't actually come out at that point. It was like, whoa, you see all these things and they're, they're blinking and, oh, I'm actually on somebody else's computer. And it was, there was this mesmerizing technology that was just uh, utterly fascinated me. And so you started tinkering with things. And of course, at the, at age 13 or 14, you have all the time in the world. You don't realize this at the time. But like this is the the peak of your 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 life. Like later you have kids and work and all these responsibilities. But like this is the time where you can really really focus on understanding the boundary of technology. Like what makes it tick? What makes it break? Like what are the things you can you can tinker with it? And so I started fiddling with a bunch of things in my 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 Linux uh, computer. And I recall um, this is in '98. I was. Connecting to an FTP service. Now, this is, of course, is gonna, gonna really, uh, age me here, but, uh, file transfer protocol. This is something we don't use a lot anymore, but it was ubiquitous at the time. Everybody had file service. All the big sites had this big file service, right? And I remember I was just trying all the built-in commands. And at one point I typed percent %p and I got back gibberish. Now, it turns out the gibberish I, I got back was actually because there was a former string back in the client and, and the Windows computer was using, uh, when I found that exact part. But it actually also turned out to be on the server side, on the Linux side, that there was this former string. But this turned into, uh, later what was called the woo of the B, uh, former string exploit of 2000. And, uh, it was this massive thing. It was probably one of the biggest. It was the first big former string exploit that really took over. And so I was really happy to be part of that, that journey and, and, and get to know all the hackers who, who, who built that. And so I, I was, I was, uh, I was on the pulse of like all the kind of pioneering years that was happening of like, how can you take a former string and overwrite something in memory and take access worker? So it was, it was a really fun thing. So I, so I got this like really nice, um, lucky shot start into the kind of hacking career. And I think, you know, casting my mind back to those using Linux distributions around that time, it kind of forced you to learn how to hack, right? Because quite often your operating system required you to learn how to hack things just to make it work with your computer at the time. Was that kind of a, a thing that you were learning through? I mean, th there were things that you did and you just break your Slackware distribution or whatever you're using. Right? And so you, it was necessary to know that there was a init equals bin bash, like in the Linux, like in the, in the Lilo, like the bootloader that was there at the time. Uh, so that you could just directly drop into a boot shell and you needed to sync your data to the disk so that it wouldn't just ephemerally leave. And like, it was just, yeah, you had to hack your computer. It was necessary. That was exactly right. And it's what's interesting to me is a lot of the guests we talk to on the podcast, you know, grew up in some famous or in some cases infamous hacking scenes. You know, they were in Los Angeles or they were in Boston and they were involved with this crew or that crew. What was the kind of the hacking scene like in Iceland at the time? Super interesting. So one of my friends was already integrated into the hacking scene in Europe. Uh, there was this infamous group called ADM, which uh, 
constitutes a bunch of, of, of hackers that have since uh, made their mark on uh, various other industries, a bunch of uh, unicorn companies and stuff that came out of that group. Um, but um, he introduced me to those people and that, that became my you know, group of friends. And, and of course, this is a time of IRC, internet related chat. And so like you, you were able to really form a connection with these people, but all you knew about them was a nickname. Like we didn't know where they lived, although you can maybe guess from some of the spelling and accent. Word <laughs> from like uh, those types of things. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah. you're probably Russian. Um, <laughs> and so, but 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 other than that, like they were from anonymous um, IPs, so they were, had hacked some server, and that's how they were uh, joining the IRC service. And so it, it was this kind of anonymous thing, and we had like two or three layers of encryption that we built ourselves on top of like the things that were in the channel. It was like this paranoid group of people, but but kindred spirits that just really wanted to understand like the limits of, of any technology. So, so it was a huge learning experience. Right, so you were using that connection to the internet and to those those communities that you'd found in Europe and other places to start your journey there. One of the things that I've read about you is in the early days, actually, it was that connection to the internet and the ISP in particular that got you your <laughs> or should we say your early start in your career? So why don't you tell us a little bit about hacking uh, an IS, Icelandic ISP? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, I will never, never forget this, uh, this night, right? So, so I was, uh, fiddling with some, uh, DNS exploit and there was this Icelandic, uh, internet service provider that happened to be running exactly those, those versions. And so I was adapting the exploit so that it could work on exactly those types of machines. And so I got in, I got into the secondary DNS server of like the big ISP and I had root access and I was, I was changing some files to like hide my presence and so forth. But all of a sudden, and I'm on a modem. I hear, hello, are you using the phone? <laughs> so it's my mom is like talking. You can hear it through the modem because that's how the modems work. It's just one phone line, which disconnects me from the internet. And that means that I cannot get back into the server that I was carrying. I had already disabled like the SSH and I, like the, the server was completely inoperable. And so I, I got disconnected and I was so scared. Like up to that point, I think everything was just this, Kind of virtual game. And this is something that's very elusive about going into hacking is that it's this really addictive pull that that kind of uh, brings you into this, this, this quagmire where you, um, are just doing things and you feel completely disconnected, dehumanized from the other side of what you're hacking. And so like that, this is like a moment of realization where I'm just like, I just destroyed the DNS server of a major ISP. Like what have I done? And so. Uh, I tried to get back into it and I couldn't. And so, uh, uh, I spent the whole night with my friends just kind of trying to figure out what I should do about this. Like, what do we do? Like, can we hack the other server and do it back in? I'm going to fix it. Like, and ultimately, and this is like 5 a.m. or something, we decide, okay, I'm just going to go there and tell them and, and hopefully they'll be, they'll be merciful. And and uh, I even had to like hide uh, in the morning. My mom would come in. Are you awake yet? And I'd be like oh. <laughs> pretending to be asleep, and then go back in. And so I just took the bus. Like I mean, I'm just a teenager with my friend, and we, we show up at this at this place and uh, let the secretary know that we're, that we're coming. And then we're just waiting. And then like I, I talk about this in, in one of my uh, talks. But like this moment was this kind of moment of of truth. Like there's this bifurcation there's this fork in the road it's like either the person on the other end is going to be uh effectively going to destroy our careers from that point forward we're going to be like they're going to call the police and they're going to take our computer privileges away maybe there's going to be some some juvenile attention now i will say that iceland in general is not a very punitive place it's it's more of a you know reform society it's not the the case that you just like put people in, in, in prisons for every type of thing. It's more of a, like, let's rehabilitate people. But even so, like the, the thought of being kind of socially ostracized for being a bad guy at 14 was, was, a, was something that I really didn't want to participate in. That's even worse to some extent than prison is to be a social outcast, right? And so that was one possibility. And the other possibility was it would be okay. And like, we would be forgiven and, and we'd get a second chance. And it was very unclear in that moment where this was going. And so you just kind of sit there. You're like this deer that has been kind of running through the, the wilderness and there's somebody chasing you. And at some point you just kind of lay over and you give up and you just accept your fate, <laughs> right? That is that kind of moment where you're just sitting and like, 
uh, it is out of my control. And so this gigantic vehicle pops out, like this really fancy, like Audi or something. And I was like, oh, okay, we're doomed. <laughs> and that's when my heart really started racing. It was like this giant, like fancy guy. It's like, this guy is not going to show us any mercy. And like this tiny little dude pops out. And it's like, why are you destroying my servers? Like comes with us, has this like grin on his face, walks us directly into the server room. And then we show him like, okay, you need to do this. You need to upgrade that service. And, and okay, here I can redo some of the things that I, that I destroyed. And, and he was very interested. It turns out that he was one of these amateur hackers and, and was actually enjoying this encounter quite a lot. And I met him since he has a company called Nanito right now. Uh, so it's kind of fun to reconnect and, and talk about this story. Anyway, so he then called us two weeks later and was like, do you want a job? <laughs> We're 14 years old. And so my friend and I both got jobs at this ISP. So we would be uh, effectively responsible for the um the email service of the largest ISP in Iceland. So we would, we made our own email like services like pop three and SMTP. And we like wrote all that stuff from, from, from scratch and then internal administration tools to the extent that nobody else could really operate it at the ISP. So we were this essential workers that were part time 14 year olds working at this company, which is like the worst management nightmare you can imagine. If you were, if you're a manager, I, 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 the CEO of the company at one point said, the day that you guys turned 18 was the happiest day in my life. <laughs> like, the liability of having this like junior guys responsible and tires, like both security and just maintenance of, of, of an FP. My friend then went on to, to work uh, for Gmail. He's been doing that since. So he's like, he continued that path and, and, and is now the, one of the world experts on, on, on actual, how do you run a scalable email service? Anyway, so that was a, that was a lucky break. And, and, um, and I'm just so thankful for having that chance because. That was just luck. Not everybody yeah. gets that kind of a chance. And and like only later did I just realize this what a break I had there and how many people did not get that type of break. And that is something that I set myself at some point being like, I want to make sure I steer people into the right direction or help them get that type of break if I possibly can, because I owe it to the world. And Obviously, you made you know the right decision there. You, you confessed. You came forward. You you went to the office and and told them everything you've done. H how did you approach the, this with your mum? That you know that she, you were suddenly being offered this job at an ISP. How did how did that go down? Did she, did you you know reveal the details that you'd broken their systems? Um, there there were some things left out of the the discussion. I've been offered a job type of thing. It's uh, it, it was from uh, like chat channels and stuff. So like it was only later that I kind of like gave more and more detail. I think my mom has this kind of weird um, image of who I am that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with who I actually am. So so like I didn't want to like spoil that bubble too much. Um, but but it's uh, like I mean I I told her and. I, 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 Probably not right away, but I eventually told her just like, yeah, I did brick in, I did, did do some stuff, and and and, and uh, it was fine. And so I mean, she was very happy that I had got this job. Actually, she was not all the way happy that I got this job because she felt that I hadn't really worked myself up to that point because suddenly I was like this 14 year old getting up on some money and so it's like go with my friend out to like steakhouses and stuff it's like hey you need to actually work up to this point this just to be like it's, it's about the process not about the goal type of thing right so so uh anyway that was interesting fantastic so one of the other exploits that comes up with shaping your career is secure shell so do you want to just tell us a little bit about the secure shell exploit um, what it was and how you first came across it? Yeah, so the um, story that, that I tell was there, there were a whole host of of different very novel approaches being made by some really smart people that were in our circles. Um, and, and I think I always gravitated towards like exploit research, like actually making computers do something they were not intended to do rather than actually taking advantage of some other systems and owning them. That, that wasn't the same yeah. appeal to me. And so there was this um, exploit that was making rounds in our circles. It was written by our friends whom we met in France, and actually, I actually traveled to Russia and France and to meet some of these hackers. Um, and so, they uh, another actually party had found a bug in Secure Shell. This is in two thousand one, so it's like uh, uh, eons ago in, in, in computer speak. But it was reported, but it was just this kind of. It was this 16-bit uh, integer overflow that happened in a routine that was 
fixing up some other attacks called the attack in, in SSH. It was, it was a routine that was trying to make sure that you couldn't just uh, uh, re uh, restuff information into an existing SSH connection to like replay that somebody hit a particular character keystroke, maybe inopportunely making it so that you type into a public forum what your password was. And so like it was some way of, of trying to mitigate that, but there was this integer overflow in there. It was this tiny little thing. And through a series of unfortunate events, it actually wound up being possible to take over the whole program, the, a root process of running default in every part of the world, every server, everybody had SSHs uh, running um, just by using uh, this integer overflow. And this is fascinating to me for several reasons. One of them was, of course, the power that comes with it. The second one is that nobody knew that this was possible. Even though the bug, bug was public, the exploit was very much not. And so I was one of the first few who uh, I was in the circles that was making this. This is before it even proliferated and, and got to uh, all the script kiddies that then like uh, <laughs> made a lot of uh, a lot of mistakes with it. Let's put it this way. Um, and, and so I had the source code. And I was going through it. It was just this. It was also. Uh, a first peek into actually using some real computer science. So, for instance, like there, we had to use binary search to figure out like the boundary of the page where we were uh, doing the exploit because it was a relative address, blah blah blah. Uh, but just like the idea of being able to to step down like the brute force, get log in instead of add, like it was, it was it was just like so many things happening at once. It was so exciting, and like there is no bigger rush than seeing a program. Do something it's completely not intended to. Right? Like you cannot, you, you cannot really beat that. Like it, it is this ecstatic moment that you'll stay with you for life. Um, I've, I've in my classes uh, when I become a professor, I've tried to recreate that by having students actually write exploits against programs like, and, and, and teach them how to do it. And, and I can sense that kind of wow, yes, I got it after like weeks of effort. Uh, and it's it's really fat, it's really fun to see that. Anyway, so back to the SSH story. So. There was a moment there, though, where I realized that what we had wasn't just an ordinary exploit. So we, we had written a whole bunch. Of, so my, my main forte that was making a former string exploits and automatic, I had probably like 20 big bugs that could take over different things. But this was unique because this was a service that was absolutely everywhere. And nobody knew that it was, it, nobody could patch against it. And so you could just walk in. And so what effectively started happening in my little hacker soakers over there was that People just started walking in and everywhere. Like you could hack any company you could name. Like it was, it was that type of a moment. And and it's almost that you feel that you're overpowered. You're OP. You're like, okay, is there any possible way this can end well? Right? Is there any way for me to see that this this amazing like mystery box that I have here in front of me that can enable me to walk in anywhere is going to end well for me while I'm sitting here in my bedroom being 14. And that's just like, I had this moment where I'm just like, this, there's no path out of this that is good. Um, and, and so I started to become a little bit hesitant of participating in all these activities. And I could see that there was this allure, this allure of power that was creeping on uh, some of my friends, they were like, well, I could get money, like I was being offered money to do some of the stuff. It's like, you are in Russia, dude. Like, I do not want to know where you're getting that money from or how does that work? Like, it, it was getting to the point where I'm like, there's probably nothing ahead here except regret. And I realized that, like, I could still turn back. Like, I, I hadn't really done anything, at least not, nothing that I'll admit to. Um, that, that wasn't kind of irrevocable. Um, and so, but if I continued, I, th I think I would have probably ended up being swept up in something, something big. And so, and some of my friends actually were, there are people who are still in prison, uh, from that time, um, from just seizing that type of power that was there and, and uh, going all the way. And, and so I, uh, I stopped. Oh, yeah, I so it's one of those. Another one of those moments for me. This is like the thing I love the most. Yeah, yeah. Another one of those fork in the road moments for you, where you decided to do the right thing and kind yeah, of yeah, very much so. Yeah. Okay, and and then from I, that I didn't kind, know that at the time. Yeah, and I think that's maybe important. Is that hindsight's twenty twenty. It's always easy to go back and be like, yeah, that was the right thing to do. And to maybe to some extent, even like as I try to remember the story, it gets embellished just through my kind of own emotional thinking about the past, but it is still 
in the moment when you're making this type of big choice, it's not always apparent what you're supposed to do because your mind may be ahead of your emotion and so you feel conflicted about where what it is that you really should be doing. Uh, and so, yeah, with the benefit of hindsight, like I was lucky multiple times and, and I really appreciate that. Uh, and I often come back to like, how would my life be different if and then look at some of these moments, right? I think there's an interesting thing that you talked about as well, that there's a sort of hacker mindset that is that I'm interested in yeah. the, the technicality of the exploit. I'm interested in in that wow moment of I've gained the access, whereas other people maybe approach it from a I want money, fame, notoriety, power, which then you know leads them down the wrong path. It, it took me a while to realize that probably the most during way to make changes, the kinds of changes that I want to make is from within the system, right? Like it's it's like if you yeah. try to subvert a system, so for like it, it does, there's time and place where there's revolution sort of history and so forth, but like rarely does that end well, except like after a long bloody period type of thing. Like you really have to work within the system. If you want to work within the system, it does offer you a lot of flexibility if you work in the right systems, right? And so being able to recognize that like, yeah, it is really, intellectually stimulating to write exploits and so forth. I don't have to show my powers and be like, ha, 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 I can take everything down. And it's like, this is mine. <laughs> like, this is not me. Like, I'm not necessarily uh, driven by that. And, and so it was important to recognize that that wasn't true for everybody who was around me. There were some broken egos and there were some just, I mean, I think Frank Herbert said earlier, so a lot of people say power corrupts, but it's really that power attracts the corruptible. And it was very apparent during that era when we had all this power, who was corruptible to its influence in my circles. And and I looked at it and be like, why are you doing this? Like, what 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 is the end goal with this? And, and, and there wasn't a good answer. And I could see that it's almost like watching Gollum, like get the ring and you're like, okay, I, I'm, peace out, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not doing that. And so, so yeah, I think it's a, I think it's important to to realize that. But you're mentioning the hacker mindset, and, and that is something that I have since taken away from this. Is that really what united all these people that I was talking to was this love for there's this endless, boundless curiosity for technology, being able to visualize everything that goes inside a program. When I say everything, I mean understanding the very details of the entire stack of your computer of like why is it that when you allocate memory here in python it causes memory allocator in c and that it actually written it's this dogly memory allocator over here and it takes its pages but like that means that it needs to do the paging inside the linux kernel but that means that there's actually like a page fault that happens like being able to like put this together and then think outside the box of like what are all the things that could go wrong with these different things? It is it is this exercise that is extremely stimulating and fun, and and at the time it was extremely rewarding because there were just there were a lot of bugs to be found. It's almost like IoT today, which is in the same era as like 1999 style exploitation, um, and so it, it was this um, free playground for people who just needed more intellectual stimulation in their mind. They probably didn't have a lot of of social skills. Um, so, so that was probably what drew a bunch of people from random corners of the planet together into this environment where we really just where were tinkering together and thinking about hypotheticals. And it was, it was, it was, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Like I really learned a lot from that experience. And from there, you took that natural curiosity, kind of left that less ethical hacking scene behind and went into academics and research driven initiatives really i i took a, a kind of a big u-turn i kind of exited the whole security i felt like if i go back into security like that's it like i'm i'll turn it to scarface or something or like i was i was afraid that i would like it, and so i i tried to just put a like a a wedge between me and, and the things that that i love it's like uh if you if you stop some addiction right like you have to kind of Cold turkey. cold turkey all the way yep. type of thing um and so i yeah I, I started doing mathematics uh at the university and that was actually also really fun because that is intellectually stimulating it has all these puzzles that you can solve in your mind and do so 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 it hit a lot of the same same uh, levers and so to that extent they had a really soft landing it's like you, you find a different drug <laughs> you start hiking or something 
Um, and, um, and then I went to do a PhD at uh, Cornell in the United States. So, so and that the specialization was computer science, but it was for me it was distributed systems and, and algorithms and those types of things. So just kind of continuing that quest for for pondering and thinking about uh, complexity at scale it was very interesting and, and it was fun. Uh, but after that, and, and a brief stint in industry of the IBM for a year and a half, I, I came back and I became a professor, and I was a professor at, at recognizing and I did have that moment where I kind of looked like I was coming back to Iceland after being abroad and I realized that all the things that I had hacked and all the people that know so far everything was the same as when I had left it like the the world was just as insecure and but there was a lot more dependence on all these electronic records and uh, and bits and so I started to really understand that I had had this privileged look into how things operate in the underground and why things break and how hacking works and so forth. And, and it would feel irresponsible of me to just then be like, no, no, no I just do math now. <laughs> and so I felt that the part of what I needed to do was to maybe communicate something that could help somehow. And, and so I, I just took the stance of like, how do I actually make the world a better place? What, what can I do from my standpoint? And I uh, actually was going through some of my old hacker files and I realized that at some point during a weekend, I had made a, uh, um, a hacking competition. I just coded up and it was like 10 years prior at the time. It was like, oh, interesting. Uh, maybe I could do something out of that. And so I fixed it up and I started like a little hacking competition at the university. And the idea there being that I can't really reach people by talking about security because like you can make security arbitrarily boring. But if you talk about hacking, that might be really alluring. And little did I know that when I when I advertised this, I was expecting maybe 20 people to show up to like this room. Not only did like everybody under the sun come and participate in this hacking competition and the scoreboard and it's like this ultra gamified thing that was like uh, subverting authority and all that stuff because you're like breaking into stuff, but like all the media arrived and then like uh, took a part and like it came in there. There was this duel at the end, like so I took the top two contenders of this hacking competition and made them hack each other. So I gave them both a shell and set something up and like, I was, I told them, yeah, 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 there, there would be very few people there. There's maybe 20 people, maybe the people in my class and so forth. And like, it was absolutely packed in the biggest rooms over there. There were like special lighting for some of the cameras and so forth. And my, my guys were sitting there and they were just tapping LS, 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 <laughs> just on stage, like for, for I don't know how long. They were supposed to be like making progress. So I had to like simplify the challenge because they were so nervous in front of all this thing going on. Of course, nobody knew what was going on, but like, there had to be some convergence of what was going on. So that was like where I really understood that hacking was catnip for media. And so as a result, like to write that wave, there was this opportunity from my vantage point to take that attention and somehow funnel it into progress. And so what I did was I started defining a hacking course. So I had like this uh, elaborate... Uh, Leverage entrance exam and so forth. And like it, it had this massive amount of people who signed up and I would just teach them everything I knew. But I would also then go ahead and, and make hacking competitions that were on stage. It was actually really fun. You have eight people. I all give them like a, a, a special image that I had crafted that had a bunch of vulnerabilities inside it and they could look and try to find and write exploits for it. And then there would be a timer and you would just hack one another. And the longer you could spend this having access in somebody else's image, the more points you would accrue. And so what the audience was watching was a scoreboard that just kept going up for everyone. Uh, and so you could see that somebody automated that like they got in or they were hiding their tracks or whatever it might be. It was a really fun dynamic that I actually love to see played on. We did that twice and so it was really fun. Um, but as a result, suddenly you had like 500 or a thousand people in an audience that were there to watch the spectacle of, of hacking and you could start to enlighten them a little bit about computer security. Right. And, and, and suddenly you had this outlet and it created that. It's just like we were on a podcast right now. There's this outlet of where you can take some of the knowledge that you've procured that's important for people and you, they're open to hearing your arguments. Right. And, and so, so I really enjoyed that. And so then we scaled that back up into what was called ICTF. So I had two extremely talented students who uh, are now actually doing CTFs for Google and one of them and, uh, and some other stuff. And um, they, uh, 
they took to this and they just created this this, this platform where we could do CTFs. And we had thousands and thousands of participants over several years. So ICTF was going for, for a while. So that was a really interesting way of doing outreach where we could put yourself in the, in, in the shoes of a hacker. Of course, with the intention that by teaching you how things break, you suddenly are able to do something that I think is the cardinal sin of when we teach security, which is that you can't teach just defense without teaching some offense, right? And, and yeah. so if you understand what is breaking, you only need like, the hacker only needs one way and like defense is much harder. You need to protect against every possible way. And so by having that ability and like the hacker mindset, going back to what you were saying, the hacker mindset of being able to enumerate and imagine and create that counterfactual in your mind of like, what are the ways in which somebody might try to get inside? If you can do that, suddenly you can understand and contextualize all these things that we're doing for defense. And I feel, I feel like this is a massive deficiency and this is a failure of our educational system. We haven't, the people who can teach this are all, they're all been poached and they're, they're in the industry. And so like there isn't a, a, a lot of valuable teaching being done in universities around the world about computer security, uh, which is regrettable. I'm hoping that that will change and maybe some book or something will, will, will fill that, the voids there. That's actually, um, um, yeah. That's actually something that really interests me looking at your career, that you've actually done a really good job kind of bridging the worlds of industry and academia. You know, you, you casually dropped in the conversation earlier that, you know, you went to Cornell, did a PhD and you happened to work in industry and, you know, looking at CV, you went and did some things at Yahoo that I believe are still in use today, That's did right, the yeah. IBM research thing. How did you... Like you say, the, the, one of the problems in academia is often the brain drain. The industry pays the wages and pulls people out, and then they're in kind of proprietary lock systems where they're not sharing information. What, why has it been so important for you to bridge both those worlds? So let me give a little view of academia because maybe not everybody is listening to this knows what it's all about. So the the default path for somebody who's succeeding in school is that you become a professor, right? Like if you're an autopilot your whole life, that's, that's what you'll end up being because you, you graduate just get groomed for it. Um, but what academia is, is that it's this massive job. Like the, I think the median number of hours per week is about 75 or 80 for professors, junior professors. Um, so it's, it's a massive, it is something where like you're supposed to be both teaching a lot, you're teaching courses. Uh, to the like more, and then of course, like that takes up all the time that you give it, right? It's like gas, it will expand to fill all available time. But then you're also supposed to be doing research, which means that you're publishing papers and doing new things and getting grants so that you can have PhD students so that you can keep that treadmill of new things coming out. But then you're also expected to do outreach and like be a, a citizen of, of the world. And so like the, the allure for, for this, there's probably, 200 people apply for each position in, in the top places in academia. It's, it's very, it's a start of the career because it has job security after you get tenure and so forth. But it is extremely demanding on a person to try to do all these things and to do them somehow meaningfully. And not all of them are rewarded the same way. And so what has happened is that if you are good at research, is that you get poached by uh, the companies, they pay three times your salary and they say, hey, you don't have to do the outreach part. You don't have to do even the publication part. You can just do products first. Or you don't have to do any teaching if you come over here and we'll pay three times your salary, right? And, and so that is, that's what has happened a lot in, in computers and so forth. And, and so uh, it, it's a little bit of a, of a mishap because that means that now you end up being educated by people who are either uh, not the ones being poached, but or you're ending up with the ones that are there because they wanted to stay. Right. They, they felt that they, that their mission was to say, and it's a slightly different group of people who are doing it kind of out of the, out of the goodness of their mind. Right. And so I don't know where I fall in all of that. I'm just saying like, this is, this is academia from, from within. Right. Um, but it also means that we don't have a huge incentive as academics to really invest massively be like, yeah, let me create a giant MOOC here and a huge teaching thing and then like scale it up and teach everybody in the world because that means that your research is going to falter. Your grants are not going to come in unless the grants are specifically for that. And like the teaching, again, like the more you scale it, like the more resources you're going to need to, to, to support it. And the university isn't built for that. So that's one of the reasons we don't have this. And so what I think is really needed is that we need to have a better cooperation between industry, government and academia about how we're going to actually tackle the fact that we have what three and a half 
million unfilled positions in cybersecurity. I think I calculated that the we're meeting 68% of the demand that industry has per year of, of positions that need to be generated to fulfill just what we need for cybersecurity. I know we're talking a lot about layoffs and stuff in, in tech that like doubled like their, their staff and then like crawled it all back when the pandemic didn't stay. Um, and, but, but like we still are urgently in need of people who understand how things break and how to fix them, right? Like it's, it's literally to the point where, and, and I'm sure this is true for a lot of people listening to this podcast is that being in cybersecurity today is, it's really like, trying to fix the Chernobyl. Like you, you're just given like this like fire extinguisher and you're just spraying until like you, I don't know, die from radiation poisoning or whatever, whatever thing, right? It's it's firefighting all the time. You don't have time to sure. do the the things that are needed to make sure that the next reactor doesn't melt down, right? It, it's it, and, and that's just a ludicrous uh, state of being and an unsustainable one too, right? So we absolutely need to do something about this part. So I'll say one more thing though about uh, since I was talking about the competition. So we felt that a part of the issue, a part of the issue we were addressing by having these um, hacking competitions was that there needed to be developers who were aware of the mistakes so that they wouldn't commit those mistakes again. And so the calculus was: if you look at the bugs that are being made. Most of them are the same bugs as were there 20 years ago, like injection attacks and stuff. Like I think uh, a couple of years ago, it was one in five bugs was an injection attack, right? This is SQL injection came out about 2000. So, so there's something about a lack of awareness of what goes wrong. And so we felt that, okay, maybe this doesn't just need to be university students who choose to major in, in, in uh, cybersecurity and happen to have a good professor. Maybe from... An industry perspective, we could do something about a problem. So we founded a company called Adversary, where we made an online platform to do exactly that, just to train regular developers to write, uh, write like actually to write exploits against code that they would see. And so it was like a fun way of getting into like, oh, okay, here's like how you do cross request forgery, or like all these like whatever latest attacks were at the time. Like here's how we somebody broke into Facebook last week, right? And we have a have a, have a, it was really fun. And, and, but a company was there for two years before it was bought and integrated into a, a product from Secure Code Warrior. So it still is there. But I think the vision is something that still needs to happen. We need to be able to have those places or these platforms where anybody, somebody like maybe like myself at 14 could go to and learn about hacking without getting sucked into uh, a, a kind of a, a toxic ecosystem from a, so, a sociological uh, perspective, like something that's going to just derail you into the black side, but so, rather something that's like, hey, this is fun, and this should now train you so that when you're writing secure code and doing something constructive for society, you're not committing all of those same mistakes. You're critical. You're you're contemplating the implications of the assumptions you're making, and so so I, I would love for for somebody to pick up that pattern. Yeah, there's some really interesting challenges there, aren't there? Because every time someone launches one of those kind of learn-to-hack platforms, people are immediately rushing to try and commercialize these things and make money out of them so then they don't maybe last as long or they don't keep content up to date. And I know I, I actually came out of academic research and I was one of those people who ran away into industry. Um, and I know a lot of the criticism of the the academic side was often from industry that you're not agile enough. You're not keeping up with all the new trends and technologies and it's taking you three years to update courses and things like that. So what what do you think are ways right. that industry and academia can work better together to do those kind of initiatives that you talked about? So I think that the optimal and and so I've I've been giving talks around the world and I often bring this up when I talk to those who are decision making talks is that we need to have some forum and I think this should actually be a government uh, sponsored forum that incentivizes people to maybe take either a break from academia or break from industry, just go into that kind of forum, and just kind of do a little think tech where we can say like, how can we, using those resources that are in this forum, reach as many people as possible with the latest things that are happening on the other side of academia or industry in a scalable, sustainable way, possibly through a vehicle that's free, just like new information and it's up to date, or possibly a vehicle, like you mentioned, of, of having a, a company around it and commercialized and so forth. And the challenge is very much, you, you're, you're right on the money. Like the, the challenge is that if you want to have a sustainable organization that's able to continue delivering quality content and so forth, like it needs 
oxygen and oxygen here being money, that money has to come through some sustainable part that doesn't take up all the bandwidth and time from the founders of those who should be making the content into creating. Uh, it can happen through volunteer effort, but I mean, if it would happen through volunteer effort, we would already have it, I think, because there's enough people interested in this stuff. It probably needs, we need to change the incentives around a little bit and try to get the experts together to make these types of challenges or make this content or to make the curriculum or to help it or somehow like generate this thing. And I do think that we're probably getting to a point where we can start to more easily make scalable educational platforms or educational games or, or, or so forth. So I feel like it's looming that the, all you need now is to be able to take, just like, I mean, if you look at the parallel in other industries, like we're, we're getting to a place where very few people can make a, what would be considered a high budget film, right? Like the special effects and, and the acting and, the, and all this, like all these things are now um, much simpler because of AI. Like you have all these like nice image uh, generation type of things. So like, certainly maybe you don't need the team of 300 people to make a film. You can cut that down because a lot of the stuff could possibly be automated. And I feel like that can also happen when it comes to scalable education, if you have somebody who has good ideas and so forth, you can deploy it easily, you can maybe do the outreach easily, you can possibly find the sponsorship better. Like there's all sorts of things that I think are becoming simpler. And so it's ripe for the taking. And it's also something that is a pain point that has only grown. Like the 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 debt that we have in terms of understanding and fixing security is compounding, right? Like, I mean, as you can see, the the attacks actually rising. Like, I mean, we have a corresponding thing on the other side where like, yeah, we should have been teaching all these people all along and now we owe that. It's like technical debt, really. It's just a societal debt yeah. in some sense, right? And so I feel like the pain point is, is probably something that can be understood and, and appreciated, but it needs to be put into a way that has this, what we're calling business product market fit, right? You need to make something that people both use but also is able to sustain itself like uh, as, an, as an oxygen. So that, that way it, it can take off. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing that come up. There have been some efforts that are a lot of preferences, like the Google Code Zero, I think has done a great job of highlighting some of the technical things and, and, and uh, sponsoring uh, really good researchers into looking into the depths of some of the things that we use every day. Um, and, and there's a bunch of really cool volunteers and, and, and things that are connected to conventions that, that are good. But we need something bigger because we have a big problem. Uh, and, and it would be really tremendous to see that uh, manifest. Yeah, absolutely. And there's definitely a need for it. It's often the fact that um, it's a global problem, but people you know, are looking to their own governments and maybe there's not the overarching thing to, to pull everything together. But certainly, like you say, the you know, democratization of things through AI and Cloud computing, the fact that no longer do you have to, you know, if you want to test a DNS exploit, you can do it in VMware locally, you can do it in the cloud, you don't need to attack your local ISP to do this these days. So, you know, there's a lot of advantages yeah, and it's getting <laughs> cheaper, cheaper and cheaper to do. Um, what, one of the things exactly. you mentioned no, there, no, that's right. one of the things you mentioned there was Adversary, the, the online security training company you found, which was then since acquired. I noticed that you'd also founded Syndis, a penetration company, testing company, which again was acquired and co-founded Keystrike, a company mm-hmm. focused on a new era of zero trust security. One of the questions is, you know, you've, you mentioned the yeah. life of an academic is long hours and hard work. How do you manage to fit all these things in into your daily life? I think um, it's, a, it's a four four letter answer, ADHD. <laughs> I think, I mean, to be to be fair, like, uh, a lot of the work done on these companies were done by the people who were really spearheading it. I was just like involved in getting it founded and I would like lend by, uh, lend my time as much as I could spare to, to, to see it come through. So Synthesis is a, gave us a, a unique window into like hacking the world's premier organizations, like Fortune 100 companies, so forth to see what's the state of security everywhere. Uh, and, and of course, fixing it. I mean, these are ex hackers that are not doing it uh, for, for good, right? And adversary gives that window into like how do you scale education? And so being able to see that as well as just understanding the mechanics of, of creating a company has, has been this, this really cool growth experience that um, complements a lot of the things that are happening in my academic life. So in my academic life, I do a lot of research into like epidemiology and malaria. We have a project in Africa. We have all sorts of things that are, that are, that are going on that are unrelated to security. And so it kind of, it stimulates different parts of your brain. And so it keeps you, uh, 
intellectually curious and it keeps you learning. And, and I think that's something that I, I really enjoy is just being in those shoes of like, okay, here's a field I know nothing about. I'm going to learn it. I'm going to dive into it. Oh my God, this is so cool. Um, and, and then try to like make your mark on it. So, so what the, so since you mentioned Keystruck there and, and, and Zero Trust, which means different things to different people. I, I, since I've told this story about like how, uh, of my, my hacker, former hacker self, I had this epiphany at one point. So I keep this log with me of all ideas that I get, which are like wacky ideas that are maybe out of my purview or have already been done or something. It's just like, if you don't grab the idea and, and write it down, it's just going to go away like a little uh, firefly and it's just going to go somewhere else. Um, so it's like, I, I try to write these down and then I work on them. But usually it means that it's an idea. It's not going anywhere. It's just a thought or it needs to develop. But like, there was this one moment where I had this idea and it's like, oh, I can do this. This is needed. This isn't very hard. This is different way of thinking about a particular problem that comes from the fact that I've had these different experiences in that life. Um, and it was the idea of keystrike. And, and so, so the idea was, was something that effectively I was putting myself in the shoes of my former self, like as a teen attacker, what would terrify me as a hacker if I came into a computer and I saw it? Right. And of course, like, I don't mean like, nuclear power plant root, like uh, that type of terrifying, but like something that would be like, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to make any progress here. I need to just log out and, and, and go somewhere else, right? And it was the idea that I would be on a computer and wasn't able to move laterally to the next machine. And, and so the idea was very simple. The idea is what if when you're typing on your keyboard or you're putting any input into your computer, what if everything that you were typing was attested, had like a cryptographic attestation attested? And that the other end that you're talking to, like the other server, was aware of this and would be like, oh, I see those key stars coming from you, but they're not from your keyboard. They're from somebody who's hacking this computer. I was, and I started thinking about this. Oh my God, the implications of this are that suddenly you have this secure tunnel from like someone's keyboards to whatever service they're supposed to be able to have access to. And there's nothing the attacker can do about it. It, it actually means that even if I compromise someone's computer, if I don't have root privileges and they have this thing like set up or if they have like a device that creates these attestations, I couldn't forge the key search. I'll be trapped on that machine. And then so like, I uh, just have this idea and I was like, this would terrify younger me. We need this. Like we need to make this happen. And so I, I took a took a leave from 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 Emory University, where I'm associate professor, and um, uh, filed for a patent. And so we, we have a, a patent pending here. And I, I got a team now. I think we eleven people. We have uh, we've got some awards. We've got some grants. We're at the like Berkeley SkyTech like accelerator type of thing to 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 learn about some of the business parts. But like we we now have a we talked to like thirty different companies. Ten of them signed up to do a pilot with us. Where they have a pilot running, and so we made this thing that just lets you kind of create a tunnel into like your precious parts of your organizations, like the. Uh, inner sanctum, like the old scatter controllers that nobody can protect or like the Swift system or whatever it is. And so the fact that it just says like, hey, I can guarantee that what is being typed on those machines, what was being received by the employees who are supposed to have access was physically made on their keyboards. And like that idea, like I, I just think it's, 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 it's a different idea. I haven't seen anything like it. I've talked to a bunch of people to see if I'm just reinventing something. It, it seems very new and it seems very exciting to me because it's really the answer that I've been looking for so long, which is how do we actually do continuous authentication without just asking you, are you still you? Are you still you? Right. This is seamless. There's no friction. It's in the background. It's, it's even simpler than like two factor authentication. You don't have to click anything. You just by typing, you're attesting that you are you. Right. So, so like it all came together. Like, and, and every time I think about this idea, I have like, whoa, we could do this. We can verify like who wrote that email or, or, or hey, we can uh, uh, make sure that like nobody uh, injected the uh, factors into code, which I'm going to at some point. Um, like a like a, like GitHub is over there. You actually attest that this code was typed by someone when it was put put in here. Or like you you can do all these cool things with it. And so uh, so we're really excited. So so that's that's my latest uh, thing that I'm I'm spending all my time on is this making that come to fruition and and finding the right vehicle where we can make that actually enhance some of the cybersecurity and and some of these problems that we're seeing manifest in, in industry that don't need these elaborate snake oily solutions and so forth to protect it. They just need something that is creating a genuine barrier that doesn't let an attacker that 
normally just does this kind of social engineering or spearfishing and gets on and moves laterally. Doesn't let that actually come to fruition. It shouldn't be like it should never be the 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 truth that if you click a bad link, that somehow your entire security of your organization is somehow forfeit. Like, what are we asking regular employees when we say like, oh, if you click a bad link, yeah, we're bankrupt. Like, it is insane how much burden is being shouldered by just regular people, right? That isn't okay. And so being able to stifle lateral movement, like I, I'm genuinely excited that we can do something about that. And that's, that's, that's what that stint is about. I mean, I can hear from your voice that you're genuinely excited about it. And it's really nice to see that that's pulling together kind of all these strands from your, you know, journey so far that you've got the, you know, the academic side that gives you a certain perspective. You've got the kind of industry side that lets you know there's a real problem out there. And you've got that hacker who you're thinking of that, you know, teenage hacker of how would, how would I be, you know, stopped by something like this? And then thinking actually, instead of just, like you say, we're detecting phishing email links or we're doing these things, what actually at the core heart of it, understanding the problem that we're facing what could I put in place to mitigate an entire class of things rather than focusing on detecting an individual malware strain, an individual phishing campaign? And, exactly. You know, yeah. Something, you know, people like Beyond Trust are, we're always talking about that proactive side and, and doing those mitigations to limit an attacker's lateral movement. So really great to hear that you're exactly doing work right. in that area. Yeah, precisely. I mean, what if you didn't have to worry about the endpoint so much, right? Like it, it is mathematically impossible to prove that your endpoint is free of viruses, right? Like it's a, a, a Turing complete problem, right? So, yeah. uh, but, but like, what if you didn't really have to do that? Like, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm totally with you. And, and, and this is probably, this is the thing that for the past 20 years has really made me very hopeless about securities because I did this 20 years ago, this like ladder moment stuff and it's still going on. I'm like, nobody's addressing this meaningfully and and so being able to maybe contribute to that yeah that that, that really uh, uh energizes me so we're getting towards the end of our time together today but you've mentioned emory university which is where you're at currently you've got um symbiosis labs going on there so maybe you could tell us a little bit about what goes on in in symbiosis labs yeah so we have a, a number of, of 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 good um PhD students who are doing research and, and what I've, I've tended to do is to come to follow the students and what they're interested in since I am interested in, in everything. And, and, and uh, so what we worked on is including that malaria project we've worked on, uh, before it was cool, we worked on ways to look at cell phone metadata as a predictor of an epidemic or being able to notice that deviations from regular movement, uh, might be an indicator of say flu or something. So we looked at the H1N1 outbreak in 2009 and so forth. So that was kind of cool being able to do machine learning before machine learning was fully developed to be able to do that. Um, yeah, we looked at a bunch of uh, machine learning problems, including like how do you scale various kind of deep neural networks and so forth on a systems level. Um, there's caching, and this is a really interesting problem that, 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 that I spent a lot of time thinking about, which is you have all these machines around the world that are just there to give you faster access to data. Right? I mean, if you think about computer per se, a computer, the Bonoimon architecture is really about, okay, where do we put memory so that the things you need don't have a huge delay because you don't want to get it from a disk. It's like trying to go to the moon to get a book, right? Like it, it, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and, but the question is, what data do you put in the really small, really expensive, but really fast memories? And so if you think about the internet, we have these caches. We have these millions, millions of servers that are just storing data and memory so that like you can get that image on Facebook really quickly. You can get that first clip from that Netflix show right away, right? But when you ask somebody in interest to be like, okay, so what should we put in there? They're all like, we don't know. And so just, they use things that we've been using for so many years, like least recently used. And so part of what I've been doing recently is like, what better things can we do there? Because everything that we save there can actually literally save millions of dollars. Uh, so it's been really fun also just kind of as a, as a mathematician type of uh, background of thinking about good strategies to, to, um, distill some of the knowledge that we know about uh, memories and so forth. So that's been a, a, a huge thing there. Um, we, um, we've we also been dabbling a lot in just general cloud computing, what services are needed, how do we make those better? And and then of course, security is there. It's a, yeah, it's been a, it's been a really, uh, so academia is the snooze button on life, right? Like it's a place where you can go and you can be, it's like an elixir. You're, you're surrounded by like this, energetic young people that are full of ideas all the way and you don't notice that you yourself are <laughs> growing uh, gray-haired and so forth. And so it's, it's really a, a fun place like that. Um, but it's also an ivory tower in the sense of like you lose a little bit of, of touch with 
what what is really happening out there. And so a part of what I'm, I'm trying to do with taking a breaking gun to to to, to Keystar is to kind of recouple myself with what is really happening in the industry. Where are these trends all going? What are the things we can do about it? And that may then feed into future research as I, as I start to think about other ideas. And just circling back to that 14, 15-year-old you finding his feet in the way of hacking, trying to you know use your moral compass to do the right thing when it came to exploits, what, what advice would you give to someone today who was just starting their journey into learning about exploits and hacking? What, what advice would you give them? Um, yes, this is a, a fantastic question. The, uh, and I hope you're listening to your 14, 15 year old, although I don't know if you're listening to podcasts yet because your world is probably quite insular and you're really taken with the, your abilities and, and possibly, yeah, uh, your moral compass is, is no longer. We'll put a clip on TikTok develop for, for a little while, right? Uh, TikTok. Yeah. Hello. I'm on TikTok. Okay. So I have to put some background music here and uh, <laughs> you'll mix it in, right? Um, yeah. So, um, I've actually had the privilege of having this conversation. So when, when I had my TED talk, it, it was viewed by like uh, 8.5, no, sorry, 1.8 million people. Um, and uh, I got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails from just random people, including a bunch of kids that were just like, teach me how to hack and, and that type of stuff. And I mean, many would just kind of ignore those types of emails because it's just people. But I actually spent some time, at least for, for the beginning, of of having tailored responses to these people because I knew that they were probably just younger versions of myself, right? And, and so trying to direct them. And I had some conversations with, with quite a few of them. It was interesting. And, and the part of it is, is really understanding. So there's there's two things here. It's, it's about separating out the technical thing that you're going after, which is that you just learn a lot about computer architecture and other things if you're uh, dabbling with hacking. And that is a way for you to enhance your understanding of security or of computer sense and so forth from this alluring power cyberpunky type of image of what hacking is. And, and so sometimes this boundaries blur when you are at that age and maybe even later. Um, and so that separation of things is very important is that you're understanding that why you're doing things. What is the motivation that drives you? What is the, what is the question that is propelling you forward? And getting, getting that crisp in your mind, like why you're doing something can really help you orient and navigate. Right? And so I do this also with college students when they come into my office and first day, and usually they, they sit down and they're like, I have no idea what I want to do with my life. And then so this confession comes forward, like they've just gotten accepted to an elite university and so forth. So it's always the same conversation pretty much, right? And and a, and a part of like, I mean, I just ask them, so what drives you? And they've never been asked this question, never thought about it. They've just been on autopilot and so forth. And I think it's a tremendously important question for everybody to ask, which is, where are you going? Why are you going to just take, take stock of where you came from, but also like where, what's next for you? And so you can try to visualize yourself of that destination. So for that, and that, that clears up a lot of the times when you can make, when you have a choice, right? And, and so to make the, the less regretful choice when you have two in front of you, I think it's very important. Uh, but it also distills some of those distractions that may come your way also it may also lead you away from the dark side where like you might be um listening to the siren song of the underworld and so forth because they have so much information about things that are really uh tinkering with the boundaries of knowledge and there's nothing boring down there but like it is the siren song and, and maybe if you understand your own motivations as being i just want to learn and understand or i want to be able to like take over my own computer like whatever it might if you might be able to protect yourself against that uh allure right yeah it's, it's tantalizing when you when you go into that space and you don't have any mechanism to protect yourself against uh whatever it is that might might certainly like that so having that firm beacon to look towards i think is essential i think it's essential for everyone uh, I've, I've, I've worked all Worked hard on trying to have one for myself. I think I'm going to add a new title to your resume, which is Cyber Life Coach, because I think that's a really, really good <laughs> thing to focus people on of, you know, what what's your motivation for doing this? Why do you want to do this? And then let that shape the directions you go in. So I think that's fantastic advice to anyone out there who's in a career today, actually, even, you know, not even just people getting started, right? This applies equally to anyone who's halfway through the career and wondering what they're doing, work out exactly what motivates you and what what direction you want to go into um before yeah. we wrap up here today is there 
a best place that people can find out more information about you or the projects you're working on online? Um, I have a website that's ymsir.com. Um, and, and check out Keystrike also. I mean, uh, and if it's something that like fits, if you think it's something that can fit into uh, what it is that you're facing and the challenges you have, or if you just think that technology is cool, like I'd love to chat. Like I'm, I'm a nerd, right? Like I'm happy to talk about all the all the uh, possibilities of, of what these things can do. Or if, if you have other ideas like that, I'm happy to 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 shoot. Just, just shoot me an email, and you can find it on my website. Well, that's great. And that's all we have time for today on this episode of The Adventures of Alice and Bob. I'd like to thank our guest, Emir Vigafusson, for sharing his journey from hacking his way into a job as an Icelandic ISP to becoming an academic in Atlanta whilst co-founding companies along the way. I'm sure that our listeners have been inspired by Emir's passion and his call to action that in order to fix things, you need to know how they break. As always, a big shout out to super producer Ben, quality control Kramer, and the crew at Beyond Trust who make this podcast happen. I'm James Maud, and this has been The Adventures of Alice and Bob. 